Unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Welcome back, everybody. So now I'll talk a little bit, and I would like to talk about suffering. Suffering. What, 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 what do we actually uh, mean by suffering? What, what is it? On the most obvious level, we all know what suffering is. Pain, trouble, something unpleasant, something we don't want, something we're hoping to avoid, something we're actually probably hoping our Buddhist practice will help us to avoid. In short, suffering is the opposite of happiness and well-being. And to me, personally, it is the most astonishing fact of ordinary human life that most of us actually think that we can minimize or even eliminate suffering. To me, this is a fantastic idea. I think the general idea that most of us have is that since suffering is so bad and so unpleasant, the thing to do when suffering arises, and the idea is that if we play our cards right and do all the right things and eat the right foods and do our yoga and so forth, there might not even be any suffering. But should there be some suffering? (laughs) What we should do when the suffering comes is we should avoid it at all costs. We should go elsewhere, move out of town, change the relationship. Somehow or other, we should avoid the suffering and certainly not dwell on it. But move on. Go on to other things. Positive things. This is, I mean, what we mostly, how we look at it. And again, to me, I find this, the fact that we actually think this way, absolutely astonishing. The idea that there's only a small amount of suffering, that you could somehow get around it, that you could somehow avoid it and go on to more positive things, to me seems like just an amazing idea. Because I think that the closer you look at life, at actual experience of life, the more acute your observation of human nature is, the more suffering you will see. You will actually uncover suffering that you didn't know was there. Anxiety is suffering. Simply not getting what you want is suffering. Being irritated or angry is suffering. Having to put up with what you don't like is suffering. Understanding that you have to die even though you don't want to. Which is actually an underlying thought that's there a lot of the time, is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Old age is suffering. Being afraid is suffering. 
knowing you could lose what you think you've got is suffering. Being ashamed is suffering. Feeling disrespected is suffering. Feeling unloved is suffering. Feeling loved but not by the right person is suffering. Feeling loved but not in the right way is suffering. Feeling lonely is suffering. Feeling bewildered is suffering. Being too cold is suffering. Being too hot is suffering. The food is too salty. The food is not salty enough is suffering. Traffic is suffering. (laughs) Waiting in line and the person at the front of the line it's taking forever is suffering. Being on hold on the telephone is suffering. You get the idea. (laughs) Suffering really is pervasive. And it's a daily experience. If you pay attention to it, if you're really looking, you'll see that there are many moments of suffering in, in every day. And even if you don't pay attention to it, if you figure, well, I'm not going to pay attention to it and I won't have to suffer, it still registers on your psyche. You can't really escape it. And it conditions your life and it shapes your life. So the idea that suffering is a minor problem that can be overcome with a positive attitude is really the greatest of all human self-deceptions. Now, now maybe uh, the issue here is partly uh, a semantic one. Maybe the word suffering you know, sounds more drastic than uh, a traffic jam. Maybe it seems like that's not really suffering. So maybe we need to look at the term and uh, the concept a little more closely. Everybody here, I'm sure, knows that uh, in Buddhism, uh, the idea of suffering is a central thought of the Buddhist teaching, uh, and that in Buddhism, the word used is is a Pali word, dukkha. And dukkha is the word that's often translated into English as suffering. But sometimes it's translated more broadly as simply dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness. And one wonderful translator translates dukkha simply as stress. And all these translations, I think, are helpful, but they're all not quite right. In other words, the word dukkha probably should be left untranslated because it's, it's, it's not quite the same as any of these words. It refers to a psychological experience that we all have, and sometimes it's conscious and sometimes it's not conscious. A psychological experience that we have when we are confronted with uh, the most profound and basic of all facts of life. Whenever we're confronted with this fact, the result is dukkha. And this fact is Impermanence, the impermanence, the radical impermanence of every moment of time and every object in the world and every person and everything, the fundamental ungraspability of things, that things are not really seeable in the way we think we see them, they're not really graspable in the way we think we grasp them, they're not really knowable or possessable. And this is actually how things are. 
and we think the opposite. We think that we can know and possess ourselves, our lives, our loves, our identities, our possessions. I mean, think about it. Almost everything that motivates us, everything that rouses us to thought and action is based on the assumption that we can possess and know our lives and the things that we know and have and so on. And this is actually not the case. And the gap between the reality of how things are and the basic human approach to life that we all have, the gap between those things is called in Buddha Dharma, Dukkha. An experience of basic anxiety, whether conscious or not, or basic frustration. In other words, the Buddha said that dukkha is the fundamental shape of human consciousness itself. So dukkha is not something extra, something that you know we could avoid. It is our consciousness. Dukkha is every moment, every experience of our lives. Not just the things that seem to be obviously unpleasant, the pain, the suffering, the loss, and so on. In fact, pain, suffering, loss, and so on are built into every moment of consciousness, even if they don't appear on the surface as pain or suffering or loss and so on. So uh, let's take just a moment to see if we can uh, look into this more closely. And I would ask all of us to return to our meditation posture just for a few moments and see if we can investigate this question of dukkha. So be with your breathing. Be with your body. And settle into awareness of every breath. Breathing in. Seeing if you can be aware of the whole of the in-breath. Notice how usually most of the breath is in the dark. There's a lot of parts to breathing in and a long breathing out. See if you could be present with the whole of the breathing in and the whole of the breathing out, breath after breath. Now, see if you can be present at the moment that the exhale ends, completely ends, and the inhale begins. Can you have clarity at that precise moment?
Uh, the closer you look, the harder it is to tell. Let's try something else. When a thought comes into your mind as you're sitting here, see if you can grab hold of that thought and make it stay there. Not, I don't mean, you know, pursue a train of thoughts one after the other. I mean one thought, make it stay there. See if that's possible. Where do the thoughts go? So, uh, this is how it is. We are basing our actions, uh, we are staking our life on these thoughts that come and go and can't be grasped. Time passes with every breath and it's very hard to tell what's going on. This is dukkha. And maybe you notice that when you're sitting in meditation, experiencing this, it's not bad, you know. You don't experience it as anguish and sorrow. And that's because uh, if you're sitting in meditation, experiencing uh, dukkha, you're sitting with some equanimity. You're willing to experience things as impermanent in meditation. And that's one of the most powerful aspects of meditation. It's the one time when you're willing to do that. You're willing to be present with impermanence, with equanimity. And that, right there, is basically the secret of lasting human happiness, to be able to experience impermanence with equanimity. And when you can experience impermanence with equanimity, when you can experience dukkha with equanimity, we no longer call it dukkha or suffering. At that time, Impermanence is beautiful and peaceful. It's not suffering. But the trouble is, we have to get up from the meditation. And even if you figured out a way to construct a life in which you were meditating all the time, just because you were doing it all the time, it wouldn't be you know it wouldn't it wouldn't have the flavor of equanimity all the time we all go forth into daily life we all get swept up in the swirl of activity and desire and we lunge forward and act we grasp things that aren't really there we operate consistently in the world that we want instead of the world as it is And so underneath our daily consciousness, there's always this anxiety, this fear, this dissatisfaction. And most of the time, 
this immense longing for a world that we could really live in. Dukkha is the basic fact of our daily life. And at the end of a life, when Dukkha becomes more conscious for us and more inescapable, finally, our whole lifetime of denial comes forward and one way or another we have to grapple with it. So, don't let that happen to you. Start now. Turning toward impermanence. And really being honest about your experience and what you're going to do about it. So now, uh, I want to quote to you at length from uh, one of my favorite books. I really recommend this book. It's called Be Still and Get Going. A Jewish Meditation Practice for Real Life. And this book is by my dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Alan Liu. And I forget now, I think, some of you maybe can remember, I think that the last time I was here, I spoke about him. Is that right? Some of you know know this, yeah. I think that's right. Because uh, he died in uh, January the 12th. And we were uh, lifetime friends, 40 years of uh, practicing meditation together. We established a Jewish meditation center together. We worked together for years. We first met at the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop in the 60s. And uh, we shared more than any two people are entitled to share, you know, in one lifetime. So it was a tremendous shock to me and a terrible loss when he passed away. And so now uh, I'm all the time talking about him and keeping his memory alive and quoting from his books. So that's what I'm going to do uh, tonight also. Because he writes about suffering, and that's, that's my topic. So why should I say more when I can get him to talk? He was always much more eloquent than I. So he has a chapter in here on suffering, and I'm going to read to you some of the things he says. And oddly enough, the chapter begins with his discussion of the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, even though it's a book about Jewish meditation. So here's what he says. Uh, Most of us, I think, tend to think of the spiritual path in terms of the high points. A birth? A death? A high point? Well, I guess in a way, it is. In, In the sense that it's very, if you've ever been around a death, it's powerful. It's a significant experience. It's not a casual thing. So in that sense, it's a high point. A birth, a death, that moment of transcendence we felt during a great storm or standing by a waterfall or viewing a sunset on a trip to the mountains. And a lot of people say that. You know, my spirituality is in nature. You know, so they, when they go to the mountains or see a big sky, you know, they feel spiritual life. But the truth is, Neither thunderbolts nor visions of pink clouds are the primary engine of the spiritual quest. Suffering is. Certainly, Buddhism recognizes this. The problem of suffering is central to both Buddhist theology and practice. The most fundamental doctrine in Buddhism is the Four Noble Truths. 
The first noble truth is that suffering is endemic to human existence. To be human is to experience suffering. Nor do you have to be a Buddhist to recognize this truth. Whenever I present this idea to Jewish groups, there is first a wave of recognition, heads nodding as people all over the room acknowledge that suffering has certainly been central to their own lives, followed closely by sighs of relief and the almost audible thought, thank God it's not just me. Because this is one of the funny things about us. You know, we're very funny creatures, you know, we human beings. And this is one of the funny things about us. Like, we think, most of us think, oh my God, I'm a mess. Everybody else is fine. And I'm keeping it together so they don't know. They can't guess. But I know. I'm a wreck. And it's so embarrassing because everybody else is doing so well. And everybody's thinking this. And nobody's mentioning it. (laughs) People are living their whole lives with one another and not mentioning it to each other. And they wonder why they're not getting along with each other. So so I think this is very true. Birth is problematic. Aging is hard. Dying is also hard to bear, begins one classical formulation of the Four Noble Truths. But that is only the beginning of the bad news. (laughs) Sorrow, pain, anger... Grief and despair are all both inevitable and oppressive. Having to put up with the things we dislike is painful, but no less than being apart from the things that we do like. Not getting what we want is extremely unpleasant, but not nearly as unpleasant as getting what we want and discovering that it's a great disappointment. (laughs) It's not what we thought it would be, or it is what we thought it would be, But the fear of losing it is stronger than any pleasure we might derive from having finally achieved it. In short, our experience is irredeemably unsatisfactory. The second noble truth tells us why. We inevitably experience life as suffering, as unsatisfactory, because we are afflicted with an inherent desire to have things be otherwise. No particular state is inherently afflictive. A physical or mental state only becomes so when we wish that it would be some other state. If we have a pain in our leg, for instance, as we might have in meditation, it only becomes suffering by virtue of our wish not to have a pain in our legs. Now this may be a perfectly reasonable wish, but it is not a necessary one. We might just as easily choose to see the sensation in our leg as just that, a sensation, in which case we would not experience it as suffering. Our life consists of an endless procession of sensations, thoughts, impulses, feelings. It is only our desire to hold on to some of them and get rid of others that causes us to suffer. Yet we do desire these things and we do suffer as a consequence. So far, all this has been pretty grim. Both suffering and the desire that causes it seem to be inescapable components of existence. 
But the third noble truth brings us some good news. The desire that creates the sense in our psyche that all our experience is somehow unsatisfactory can be eliminated, leading to the cessation of suffering. The way to the annihilation of desire is the fourth noble truth, which consists of the Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And if we practice all that, our desire and our suffering will be extinguished. This sounds good, no? But before you break out the champagne and begin to celebrate uh, your liberation from suffering, Consider that there have been lots of different schools and styles of Buddhism over the last 2,500 years, and they don't all agree on exactly what right view and so on is. So it's not as simple as it seems, and I would add that even if they did agree on what it all was about, that doesn't mean that it's easy to do it, as we all already know, because many of you in the room, I'm sure, have been practicing the path of the Buddha and Uh, Let's uh, hope that it has helped you, but probably even so, you probably wouldn't say that you you have overcome suffering entirely. Nevertheless, for all the differences uh, about the particulars of the Eightfold Path, there's a consensus among most Buddhists that meditation is an important and possibly essential element of this path. After all, if the problem is dissatisfaction with our experience, then meditation, which tends to make our experience more satisfactory, would logically point toward a solution. And I don't know if you've noticed that, but this is one of the effects of meditation. You, you practice meditation and things don't to, seem to be so bad after all. Have you noticed this? Like maybe if you've ever had the experience of having a terrible problem that's really bothering you. And you're, if you're able to sit down in meditation and, just, and actually just breathe and be there, you get up from meditation and you think, well, it's not as bad as all that after all. Yes, I still have this problem, but it's not as bad as all that. And also, uh, if you sit in meditation, you get up from meditation, you look around at other people, and they look nicer than they did before. <laughs> have you noticed this? You know, before they were sort of this, you know, semi-threatening bunch of other people over there. But after you get up from meditation, they they seem a little softer. You know, their skin is a little softer. The outline of their bodies is not quite so rigid as it was before. And they're not all that bad after all, you know. So I think that that is true, that meditation. Have you noticed these things? Or is it just me? No, I think you notice. Some of it's just me. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, but anyway, he says, he says here, whether we, whether we argue with him or not, he says, meditation does make your experience better and <clears throat> diminishes your desire to have things be otherwise. I mean, there's nothing worse than sitting in meditation and wishing with all your heart that you were elsewhere. <laughs> this is really a bad idea. I don't recommend it. Leave. Don't meditate if that's your idea. Now, here comes the Jewish part. The amelioration of suffering is not the central imperative of Judaism. The central imperative of Judaism, I believe, is to recognize and manifest the sacred in everything we do and encounter in the world. 
While this in no way conflicts with the idea of amelioration of suffering, in fact, I think we can safely assume that if we realized the sacred in every moment, we would be rather less inclined to wish that we were in some other moment. Still, it is not the same idea. Yet even if the problem of suffering is not the central concern of Jewish sacred literature, it certainly occupies a prominent place in it. In fact, the very first story that we tell as a people, and this goes not only for Jews but also Christians, is a story about a man and a woman who had everything they could possibly want, (laughs) but whose desire for the one thing they could not have thrust them into a world of suffering and death. This is sort of the basic story of our culture, right? <clears throat> Kabbalistic cosmology also expresses the idea that creation is fundamentally broken and that suffering is therefore inevitable. According to Lurianic Kabbalah, God originally existed as the Ein Sof, literally the endlessness, God's essential, undiluted nature, a vast and limitless emptiness, so powerful, so charged with supernal energy, that nothing could coexist with it. So, when God wished to bring creation into existence, it was first necessary for God to remove God's self from a tiny dot at the center of the Ein Sof. The process of self-removal was called tzimtzum, or contraction. It was accomplished by means of kelim, vessels that carried the divine light out of this tiny speck at the center of the Ein Sof. But as tzimtzum unfolded, a cosmic catastrophe occurred the divine light proved to be too strong for the vessels, and the vessels broke open, filling the universe with dangerous shards of devouring light, with failure, suffering, and death. And the task of humanity, of all being, from the moment of that catastrophe forward, became tikkun olam, the repair of the universe, the mending of the broken vessels, and the restoration of the divine light to its rightful place. Did you ever hear that story? It's a great story. It's a, it's the, it's a fantastic uh, creation story. And it's the only creation myth that I've ever heard of that exactly coincides with the Big Bang creation myth, which is the creation myth we have now. About the Big Bang, you know, the speck, and the boom, just like that. But these three stories the Four Noble Truths, the Garden of Eden, and the breaking of the vessels. And the basic skeletal structure upon which all three of them rest has always raised a number of troubling questions for me. Is the universe essentially deficient and in need of improvement? Is God flawed? Why was this desire, which would prove to be our undoing, implanted in our souls in the first place? Why did God make vessels that would break? Was God a screw-up? So this bothered him, and he thought about this. Or, 
Or is there something about the process of healing, of working through suffering and death, of mending a broken world, that is both necessary and good? Is there something about the process of extinguishing desire that might, in fact, leave us better off than if we never had desire at all in the first place? The fall from Eden cast us out of paradise, but maybe that's not a mistake. Maybe it thrust us into history, and maybe there's something necessary, even redemptive, about the experience of history. As for the breaking of the vessels, the rabbis of the Talmud said that it is far better to have sinned and repented than never to have sinned at all. And in the Talmudic discussion that followed this assertion, the rabbis observed with impeccable biological correctness, it should be added, that a bone that has been broken and healed is far stronger than a bone that has never been broken. All of this raises more questions, though. Suffering may very well be inevitable, but can it also be useful? Is the history we were thrust into after our fall from Eden not only inevitable, but also something we needed to go through, something that benefited us more than our remaining in a static paradise would have done? In a teaching that turns the Four Noble Truths on their collective head, Rebbe Nachman, the great Hasidic master of the 18th century, seems to answer these questions in the affirmative. Now comes a quote from the great, great Rebbe Nachman, one of the great spiritual and, and, and most colorful spiritual uh, leaders uh, that ever lived. And here's what he says. The strength of a person's desire is brought about by the impediments that happen to him. So when a person needs to do something, a hindrance will arise in his path. And this hindrance is for the sake of the desire. By means of the hindrance, he will have greater desire to do this thing that he needs to do than he otherwise would have had if there weren't such an obstacle. For whatever a person is prevented from doing, whenever a person is prevented from doing something, his or her desire to do it becomes much stronger. So it is that obstacles are placed in the way of a person who needs to do something so that his desire to do it will be increased. This is especially true in matters of holiness because the more important the thing desired, the greater the obstacles that are presented. Consequently, When a person experiences many obstacles to the realization of some holy task, he should realize that this shows the importance of the thing desired. This is the general rule. Every obstacle is presented only for the sake of increasing desire, so that once a person has a great desire to do something, he will carry it out, and the potential will become actual. So, Rabbi Lu goes on, according to Rabbi Nachman, there is an inevitable relationship between our desire for a thing and the obstacle that stands in our way. If we didn't want a thing, we wouldn't see what was preventing us from obtaining it as an obstacle. Although the Buddhists don't acknowledge the existence of God, nor do they deny it, God, at least the God of Rabbi Nachman, 
seems to have a pretty good idea of how the Four Noble Truths operate. Desire causes suffering, but suffering also causes desire. If we desire that which we don't have, then suffering in the form of an impediment to what we want will only make us desire it more. So suffering and desire are not inherent defects in the universe, nor God's mistakes. Rather, they are divine instruments. And Rabbi Nachman sees this use in suffering, that it can awaken us to the spiritual path and quicken our resolve to remain on it as well. So I think that's a wonderful teaching and a beautiful thought. Be still and get be still, be still and get going. Uh, by Rabbi Alan Liu, L E W. And get going, yeah. It's a wonderful book. So uh, the question of suffering then is inescapable and powerful in our human life. In fact, uh, in Buddhist uh, cosmology, in which there are many worlds, the characteristic of the human world is that in the human world there is just the right amount of suffering for the purpose of motivating us and propelling us to the spiritual path. Not too much, making our practice impossible, and not too little, making us so comfortable that we don't take up the path. So suffering is pivotal in human life. And whatever your religious point of view, it is obvious that life can be meaningful for us, but it can also be meaningless. And when life is meaningless, it's really painful because we're built to need life to be meaningful. And when life is meaningless, we become a bitter and sometimes brutal or numb. We need meaning and purpose. And it's the suffering that comes into our life that can either, and sometimes it does this, pulverize us and reduce us to meaninglessness and brutality and numbness and so on. Or it can be the very force that brings us to the most beautiful possibility in a human life. Suffering is really important. Our goal here is not to eliminate suffering. It's to understand and embrace suffering in the right way for the benefit of our lives and the lives of others. Suffering is the greatest human challenge and the greatest human opportunity. So that's my talk about suffering. Now I'm going to switch gears for just another few more minutes if I can maintain your attention because I just wanted to, I'm very happy that I have a new book that just came out. It has nothing to do with suffering. Maybe it does, I don't know. But I just want to take a minute to tell you about it um, and read from it a little bit. Uh, The book is called Questions, Places, Voices, Seasons. And it's a large collection of Poetry, unusual poetry, I think. Unusual for me, anyway. And I'm going to read a few poems from this section called Voices. And let me explain a little bit 
uh, I wrote a, my, my last book of poetry was called uh, I Was Blown Back. And um, I struggled to write the poems in I Was Blown Back for about five or ten years. And when I finished the book, I thought, that's it. That's what I was supposed to write, and I can't think of anything else. So maybe that's the end for me. I've been writing poems and publishing poetry all my adult life. And it's a shame, but maybe it's over now. So I went along thinking this. And then all of a sudden the thought occurred to me. Well, if I can't write poetry anymore, maybe other people can. So why don't I write as if I were other people? So I thought this was a brilliant idea. So I began doing that. I began writing poems as if I were other people. And then it was very easy to write poems because I didn't have anything else to say, but these other people had lots going on. So I wrote a whole bunch of poems as if I was other people. There was a bunch of poems written by uh, a guy who was a shepherd. Uh, actually, a goat herd. He had a few sheep, but a lot of goats. Somewhere in Spain. And he was very... Uh, wrote a lot of poems, long poems. <laughs> then there was... Um, there was uh, Saigyo, who actually was a real person who lived in the 12th century uh, in Japan. He was one of the early Buddhist poets. And I wrote in Saigyo's voice, and he had a lot to say. I wrote a bunch of poems uh, in the voice of Elena Rivera, who's an actual friend of mine, who's a young poet who lives in New York. I wrote poems in her voice, um, in a bunch of other voices. So that's why there's a section of the book called Voices. It's all poems written in other, other voices. And so after I finished all that, then I managed to go on in my own way. So that kind of got me out of that rut. Anyway, on the theme of rabbis and Jewish meditation, I'm going to read you a set of a few poems that are actually prayers written by a guy by the name of Reb Yosel, who lived in a town called Kemenetz. Uh, He lived around 1820. This is a person I made up. No such person as far as I know. But he wrote these poems. So this one is called uh, Prayer to Remove Fear and See the World's Beauty. And Reb Kemenitz is a very simple person. I think, yeah, he's a tailor. So he was uneducated, and his poems are very, very simple and very sincere and straightforward. Prayer to Remove... So these are real prayers by this guy. Prayer to Remove Fear and See the World's Beauty. Why is the wind so startling? when in autumn it stirs the grasses, drying out the plains, and so terrifying in winter, when it whips the trees, making me afraid the trees will uproot and fall upon my house, God forbid. (laughs) Oh God, oh God, you who aren't afraid of winds, or trees, or night, or of me, Please grant, though I am unworthy of your graciousness, given the meagerness of my acts, the weakness of my love, and the distraction I feel each day in the prayer house when my mind wanders to common, unexalted thoughts. Please grant that my heart be purified. Let my deeds 
and the words I utter from this day forth whip the roughness from my soul to cleanse and polish my eyes so that your world will shine in them startlingly and with fear of you. Why, thank you. I'm not used to applause. Prayer, Prayer for my wife. This is a prayer for my wife, dear God, who moves, no matter where she moves, whether in air, on earth, or underwater, God forbid, at the precise center of my life, where I know you should live, forgive me, in the fullness of every good thought, every worthwhile and kind deed I do. O God, praise her and protect her so she won't get sick or be seriously hurt by anything. And since I know that because of my sins and the weakness of the flesh, so poor as always in your eyes, this is impossible, I am asking you to do it anyway. Because you are the God who turned back the seas, fed us in the wilderness, leading us by a pillar of fire, and such things for you are surely possible, should you wish to grant them. Or, if you are offended by my asking, please instead grant that her falls not be from high places. (laughs) And her scrapes and bruises not so rough and painful. And that the heavy pots she lifts, the pails of milk, be made slightly less weighty in her arms. May her soul sufferings be likewise lightened, lifted up gently toward heaven by your ministering angels, so that she will become used to them and not complain. (laughs) And when, dear God, I am gone away and cannot help her, please do your best to be her support so that she be well and safe and happy and satisfied in a world that is well enough and sufficient. And I bless you, God, in advance for granting these things and for providing me with such a radiant bride. Prayer for prayer of gratitude. O oh God, you who brought our ancestors to their peaceful ends in Olam Haba who preserved them in life, in communities of wholeness and truthfulness, who also made them suffer there, it is true, but also made them holy and good, generation to generation, world after world, I sing now praise of you. Like David, I play it on the harp, the lyre, with bells, tumbrils, and with dancing, and especially with my words. These words, spoken aloud to you, most precious and strange. There's no reason I'm alive here in the colorful world you have made, with other people as strange and magnificent as I am, also with intelligence, emotion, and skill in prayer to turn the four worlds toward presence, as I am unfortunately unable to do. Save your will, your will and desire, not to be lonely, but to discover the love hidden in creation from before the beginning, to make it manifest here below, for which I am grateful. And dear God, I hope you are happy with things. That you are also getting what you need. And that you will be able to rest again soon with far less trouble than you have now. 
And the last one I'll read, and I'll close the evening with, with this, because I think it's time to go. I'll finish this poem and then announcements. Prayer for laborers. <coughs> May all who labor with their hands, those who clean and cook, make beds and remove garbage, those who fashion things of this world, as you have fashioned this world, of words of your mouth, those who make small things crafted by hand, or very large things in the city's factories, but especially the smaller things of the earth, made in small workshops near here, things like shirts or spoons or shoes, carts, pins and paper, buckets, rope. May all who make these things receive from you special blessings and extra protections because they are noble and deserve the best of your care. So, I have some copies of the book back there if you want to look at it. And I, and I want you to know that this is the first time that I've presented. Uh, I'll probably run around and give readings and whatnot, but this is the first time I've presented the book to anybody. And I, I didn't want to do more with it because, after all, you came for a Dharma talk and maybe you hate poetry for all we know. <laughs> so I just, a little bit. But um, anyway, thank you for listening to the talk. And And I think there's just time for the announcements and then we all better. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.